0: The difference was that Section 100A is about the subjective intentions of the parties, essentially. It's supposed to look into their mind and work out what they were trying to do. So, by that, by their mind, I mean the taxpayer and possibly their advisors. But what they said was, well, with Part 4A, it's a different test. It's an objective test. So, you have to look at the factors and then work out objectively was the purpose of this to get a tax benefit. Not really about what's in their head subjectively, more about just what had happened and categorising it.
1: You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants. Tax Talks, the podcast to grow your firm.
2: Welcome to Update 34 of Text Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to DocuSign for sponsoring this update. So last week, Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne discussed the final versions of the irrelevant TR and PCG with you. TR 2022-4 and PCG 2022-2, both about Section 100A. This week, let's look at two recent court cases about reimbursement arrangements under Section 100A. The first case is a new one, the B blood case. Andrew will describe what this one is about. But the second one, the Guardian case, we already discussed in episode 345. So let me just quickly rejig your memory what this case was about. The taxpayer only needed to win one point to win the case and they won on three counts in the single judge decision at the federal court in 2021. So It was a big win for the taxpayer and a humiliating loss for the ATO. However, the ATO appealed and it went to the full federal court. So now not just one judge ruled on the matter, but at least three. So this full federal court ruling is what Andrew Henshaw will discuss with you in this episode. What actually was the matter that caused concern? You already heard in episode 345 how the taxpayer turned rental income into a frank dividend. And if you still remember the details, please skip ahead for 9 minutes and 50 seconds. But in case you can't remember the details, let's just quickly go through them.
1: An Australian trust with rental income, a non-resident beneficiary, and an Australian bucket company.
2: So the Guardian case is about an Australian discretionary trust with rental income. The controller and beneficiary of this trust is a resident of Vanuatu and hence a foreign resident, a non-resident. Let's call him Mr. Vanuatu. And then there's also an Australian bucket company which is held by the trust. So the trust is the 100% shareholder of the bucket company. The bucket company is registered in Australia. So even if the central management and control was in Vanuatu, the bucket company is still an Australian tax resident. The Australian Trust has a property in Australia, so any rental income is Australian sourced. It must have been quite a large property portfolio since the rental income was 2 million per year. If you assume a rental yield of 5%, then the property portfolio must be about 40 million dollars. So Mr. Vanuatu is not a poor man. So this Two million rental income arrives in the trust every year. Every year, two million. So how would this have been taxed without any funny business? And what did they do instead that caught the ATO's
1: interest? No funny business.
2: When you distribute income from a trust, it is assessed to the beneficiaries under Section 97. However, if the beneficiary is a non-resident, as Mr. Venuatu is, the trustee, rather than Mr. Vanuatu, the trustee is taxed under Section 98, Subsection 3 of the ITAA 1936, and that at top marginal tax rates. As you know, when a non-resident receives Australian-sourced income from a trust, Australia wants to make sure it gets its taxes, and it does this in two ways. Withholding tax or assessing the trustee. Think of it as two buckets dividends, interests and royalties are in one bucket where the withholding tax rules apply. and any other income is in the other bucket where the trustee gets assessed at top marginal tax rates. Rental income is not subject to withholding tax and it's not dividend interest or royalty, so it is in the bucket where the trustee is assessed. Yes. The tax to the trustee is not a final tax. Mr. Vanuatu could have prepared an Australian tax return and claim expenses as well as a credit for the tax paid by the trustee, but he would have been taxed as a foreign resident and so the tax outcome wouldn't have been great. As a non-resident with $2 million of Australian accessible income, he would have paid about $880,000 of income tax as a non-resident. So clearly not a great tax outcome. So what did Mr. Vanuatu and the trust do? Did they assess the trustee and pay 880000 of tax?
1: Distribution to the bucket company.
2: You already guessed it. They didn't. The trust didn't distribute the trust income to Mr. Vanuatu. Instead, it distributed the trust income to the bucket company. And so the bucket company paid 30% of tax... The rental income was $2 million, so the company paid $600,000 of corporate income tax. There's a small possibility that the company only paid 25% of tax as a small business, but unlikely. So let's go with 30%. Still all fine. But Mr. Vanuatu wants his money, and it is currently stuck in the bucket company. So what did they do next?
1: Now the funny business begins.
2: So now… The bucket company pays a 1.4 million franc dividend to its shareholders, the trust, with a $600,000 franking credit attached. So the income arrives back in the trust, but now it is no longer rental income, but a frank dividend. And now you can see where this is heading. Now we are no longer in the bucket where income gets assessed to the trustee, but we are in the bucket where withholding tax supplies. Dividends. Frank dividends are specifically excluded from these withholding rules. So if a non-resident receives these frank dividends, then no withholding but also no refund of franking credits. So you lose the franking credits. Or let me say this in ATO lingo, if a non-resident beneficiary is taken by Division 11a of Part 3 to be presently entitled to a frank distribution received by a trust, The franking credits attached to that distribution are not taxed to the trustee, do not reduce the tax payable of either the trustee or the beneficiary, and are not refundable. End of quote. So you lose the franking credits, but you gain by not having to pay withholding tax either.
1: $280,000 tax saving.
2: So now you can see why this is so advantageous. Instead of 880,000 of tax, Mr. Venuto would have paid if the rental income had been distributed directly to him. He only pays 600,000 in the form of lost ranking credits. That is a $280,000 saving each year. So just short of a million dollars after three years, so just short of 10 million after 30 years, and 30 years is not a long time in a trust's life. So clearly worth the trouble. So, it is obvious why the ATO didn't like this and took him all the way to the full federal court. Now, let's just quickly look at the single-judge federal court judgment in 2021. The ATO lost on three points, which were as follows.
1: Number one, no reimbursement agreement at time of distribution.
2: I find it hard to believe, but the court accepted that there was no agreement at the time of distribution. So... When the trust distributed the income to the bucket company, there was no intention of feeding it back into the trust the following year. Even though they did that three times, even though they did reimburse the trust, the court held that there was no intention at the time of the original trust distribution. So now Section 100A. Number 2. No
1: tax reduction purpose.
2: In order for Section 108 to apply, the purpose of the agreement must be a reduction of income tax. But the problem is a reduction of income tax in comparison to what? Which other hypothetical scenario do you use? And of course, you and I would have used the distribution rental income directly to Mr. Vanuatu. And that's what the ATO did as well. That's what they argued as well. They argued that the distribution should have gone straight to Mr. Vanuatu. But Mr. Vanuatu argued, that he would have never done that. He would have kept the income in the company for asset protection purposes. He would never have paid it out directly to himself. And so no tax was saved. And the court accepted that and ruled that you can only look at the dividends and can't go back to the original trust distribution. And of course, if you only look at the dividends, then no tax saving and another point lost to the ATO. Number three,
1: Ordinary commercial or family dealings. As you know, if
2: there is an ordinary commercial or family dealing, then it is excluded and Section 108 doesn't apply. And Mr. Venuetto, of course, claimed that it was a family dealing, an ordinary family dealing, that he was only worried about asset protection and nothing else. Saving tax never, ever even entered his mind. And the court said that you can't use the benefit of hindsight and accepted that Mr. Vanuatu's claim that this was an ordinary family dealing. And so this was the third point the ATO lost.
1: Would have been great.
2: And in a way, the fact that the ATO lost would have been really good news for us as tax advisors, because you would be in a strong position to help your overseas clients with trust income in Australia. You would be able to do what Mr. Venueto did. You would feed any trust income that is not interest dividends or royalties into a bucket company and then pay it out as dividends without any further withholding tax. And The Guardian case as it stood last year would have given you a stronger defense, not watertight as Andrew Henshaw highlighted, but definitely a stronger defense. But now the full federal court has ruled and Andrew will tell you what that outcome is. So the news is no longer as good for us as it was after the single judge ruling. So I will now hand over to Andrew Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne. He will start with the b blood case and then tell you what the full court found in the Guardian case.
0: It is quite narrow still. So it's it's, it's only going to cover your, your pretty vanilla situations where so, you make someone present entitled and you pay it within two years. And there's no funny business going on, we'll call it. But it's something.
2: Yes, it is something. But I think even with that, you can still create funny business. We cover that later. I I want to run you through an example, but I'm first very keen to hear the court cases.
0: So we had to. Decisions last year.
2: So, we had two court cases?
0: Yes, yeah, so I had two court cases. One was B Blood, and the other was the appeal in Guardian. So, B Blood was a first decision. So, it's a federal court with a single judge. And this concerned an arrangement where you'd have a private company with retained profits, and the shares in the private company would be owned by a discretionary trust. And the company previously traded, but is now. No longer trading anymore, but has a lot of retained profits. So option one to get that money out would be just declare a dividend and be done with it. And then the trust can make whoever presently entitled and pay the top up tax and all that stuff. But that's not what happened in B Blood, Because of course, if that happened, then we wouldn't be in court. So what happened in B Blood is they did a share buyback instead. So rather than a dividend being declared from that private company to the trust, the private company bought back its shares from the trust.
2: And do you know why they did that?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do know why they did that, to try to avoid tax. To make it capital? From a tax perspective, the tax treatment of a share buyback, where the money just represents retained earnings, is still treated as a dividend anyway. So from the trust's perspective, it is taken to receive a dividend. The difference is that that amount for the trust is not ordinary income. It's basically like a statutory amount of income. So it's not income according to ordinary concepts. So what the trust did then is it resolved that its income would be income according to ordinary concepts and add a very small amount of income according to ordinary concepts. So the, the share buyback, Is not not income according to ordinary concepts. And what the trust did was make another company, a freshly incorporated company, presently entitled to that small amount of income. Let's just call it $100. Now, okay, that's fine. So what happens with the tax? Well, that newly incorporated company is presently entitled to 100% of the income of the trust. Which is $100. $100, but it's taxed on 100% of the net income of the trust, the tax law income definition for the trust, which is including this deemed dividend from the share buyback. So what you basically get is this new company being assessed on the dividend and it's got franking credits too. So basically what you get is all of the tax consequences from this share buyback going to a new company, but the money stays in the trust other than the $100. And then the trust can make a capital distribution to individuals.
2: I see. And this new company never pays out.
0: No, it has no money to pay out. It's got credits sitting there, but it doesn't ever have to actually, it doesn't have any other assets. So you've you've basically just, you've kind of stripped all the money out, basically, out of corporates by the mismatch between trust law income and ordinary income.
2: Yes, because this new company, of course, doesn't pay any tax on the income because... No. I assume the old company paid 30% and then this new company paid 30%, so the franking credits will exactly cover yeah. the income within the company, so the... That's
0: exactly what they did.
2: Yeah, and then and then you also don't have the problem that the money has to go to the new company.
0: There's no Division 7A problem because, well, the company was only ever entitled to $100 of income and that was paid to the company, so... It's not a, there's no DIP 7A UPE sitting there. they paid the entitlement. The entitlement's a hundred bucks. The issue is that there's a mismatch between trust law income and taxable income.
2: But to start with, it's very clever. It's clever if it works.
0: Yeah, sure. It
2: takes quite a strong grasp of all this to come up with it.
0: Yeah. And, and in the in the decision, I believe there's six other taxpayers that are also in the same category. So the the actual taxpayer in B blood is not the only one that has consequences from this. And I, I don't know the status of any of those other taxpayers, but they may be in the exact same position if they hadn't settled with the ATO, for example.
2: They need a certain wording in the trust deed, correct? Because nowadays, very often, I think the trust deed basically says trust income equals... I don't even know what does what does a modern trust deed usually say with respect to trust income
0: so there's usually there's lots of different variations. your older trust deeds often do not define income at all they just say the income of the trust and they don't actually define what income of the trust means so you have a question what does it even mean now most of those trusts have been varied to give income definition powers. There's other trusts that say income means. Income according to ordinary concepts or income according to accounting principles or Section 9.5 income, which is taxable income. That's your income equalization clauses. But most modern trustees, whatever definition they start with, there'll be a very broad power for the trustee to adopt different definition of income for the year.
2: So then the trustee, these powers, will say, okay. Income is just ordinary concepts. Yes. And hence this share buyback dividend doesn't fall under it.
0: Yeah, and I believe in Blood they actually did vary the deed to make it that it was income according to ordinary concepts unless the trustee resolves otherwise. So I think it's pretty clear what their plan was.
2: I quite admire the (laughs) criminal. It's not criminal energy, but I quite admire their facetiousness, if that is the right word, to kind of say, okay, we are going to try this.
0: Yeah, look, it's it's clever if it works, but if it doesn't, then...
2: They wasted their time and money. You,
0: you've you got the tax, you've got penalties and interest, and you've got litigation about it, and then you've got your name up on a case as well. So it's not something I would have recommended.
2: Yeah, you need to like conflict.
0: Yeah, well, you can see why the ATA have a problem with it as well, because it's If you were to just declare a dividend, it would just be, you know, who's going to pay the tax on it? Okay, yeah, you could still distribute the dividend to a corporate, but then you've got to deal with your Division 7A, for example. This is sort of getting out of tax entirely, where because of the mismatch between trust law income and taxable income.
2: And not out of tax entirely, because of course the old company already paid thirty percent on the income. Yes, so it's yep. just getting out of the top up tax.
0: Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah.
2: So now, so now it went to court, and
0: yeah, so that's what happened, and the taxpayer lost on the hundred A issue. The court said it was a reimbursement agreement. This was essentially a contrived arrangement. If you look at all the steps that are required for it, whereas the, where, the, the buyback achieved no real objective. There's no reason to do a buyback other than this because all it had is retained earnings. The taxpayer didn't come up with the idea. It was their advisors that came up with it and proposed it to them. They tried to argue sort of some technicalities on why Section 108 a shouldn't apply, but, but none of them were successful. It was a loss for, for the taxpayer. But they have appealed the decision and the hearings actually already occurred. I believe it occurred in either March or April this year. Uh, But a decision hasn't been handed down on the appeal yet.
2: I have two questions for you. The first one is, is Section 100A separate from Part 4A? Because even if Section 100A doesn't work, you could still come with Part 4A, correct?
0: So they are separate. I think that's a real risk. I think you could have Part 4A. You could also probably have Section 99B potentially applying to it as well. But yeah, there's a, I think that, that you could de- you definitely have a pretty strong part for a risk here, even if you are out of Section 108.
2: My second question is off topic, and that is the judges who rule in these cases, do they have some tax background? Because I can imagine this is incredibly complicated for somebody who doesn't have a tax background, but just a normal administrative law background
0: or so. Some judges have more of a tax background than others, but they are incredibly bright people. And you know there's barristers assisting about interpretations of of various things, so
2: so the barristers basically explain it to the judges.
0: yeah, yeah, some some judges are stronger in tax than others, yeah, yeah, you've got to have a strong understanding of trust, law, perhaps even more so than the tax legislation. And then the other case was Guardian, which follows on from your question about section hundred A and Par four A. We discussed the facts of this case previously very briefly. They involved a strand company with retained earnings, a discretionary trust, and a non-resident individual beneficiary. And in essence, what happened is the trust-derived income, the trust made the company presently entitled to that income, and by way of set-off arrangement, the company declared a dividend back to the trust. And then the trust made the individual presently entitled to that dividend. The ATO's issue with this case is if the trust had simply just distributed the money to the individual to start with, the rules about trusts distributing to uh, income to non-beneficiaries would have applied and the money essentially would be taxable and withholding tax would apply to the Australian trust. By taking the step of first appointing the money to a company and then it coming back as a dividend, you're out of the normal trust to non-resident rules and you're into the dividend to non-resident rules, which meant that it was a final, there was no withholding tax and no further tax on the money going to the non-resident. So you'd basically move from a 47% rate to a 30% rate of tax by taking that step essentially.
2: Yeah, By moving income backwards and forwards, you have withdrawn the need to withhold tax.
0: Yeah, correct, correct. And, and there was a few more complications than that, but that was essentially the case. The first decision was that, which we talked about previously, was that the, the federal court found that Section 100A didn't apply and par for a didn't apply because that was the ATO's alternative argument. The full federal court decision also held that Section 100A didn't apply. But they did hold that Part 4A applied for one of the years. And it can be a bit confusing to try to work out, well, why did Section 100A not apply, but Part 4A did apply? And I'll try to explain it the best I can. The difference was that Section 100A is about the subjective intentions of the parties, essentially. It's supposed to look into their mind and work out what they were trying to do. So by that, by their mind, I mean the taxpayer and possibly their advisors. And what they said was, well, at the time these present entitlements were made, there was no preordained plan. So by the time the trust made the company presently entitled, there was no preordained plan for the money to go back, basically. So no Section 100A. No
2: reimbursement. What they did say.
0: Yeah, no, no reimbursement agreement. But what they said was, well, with Part 4A, it's a different test. It's an objective test. So you have to look at the factors and then work out objectively was the purpose of this to get a tax benefit. Not really about what's in their head subjectively, more about just what had happened and categorizing it. And they said that, well, and the taxpayer did this for two years in a row, and they did something slightly different for the third year. And they said that, well, by the time you did it the first time, when you're going around to do it the second time, objectively, you sort of would have known what's going to happen. Like the trust-based company presently entitled, you're going to have to pay that at some point because otherwise you're going to have Division 7A. So objectively, someone would have known that this is what's going to be required. So for that reason, Part 4A applied so the real interesting thing for me is that just working out what situations part would apply to bucket company type arrangements because it's very, it's quite common to see a clients group they've got a discretionary trust they decide to appoint income to a private company but they're never actually paying him out to the private company they might do it for a few years and perhaps they realize they, they say oh look it's too complicated division 7A is going to apply anyway let's just Let's just sort of unwind it, pay dividends out, get rid of the whole thing. It's quite similar that it's not as stark because usually you're not dealing with a non-resident, but that type of scenario is quite common. And from a substance perspective, you could argue that just appointing the money to a bucket company and then never actually investing or doing anything with the bucket company, you've done it just solely for tax and the deferral of tax at least. So... Yeah, the hasn't really said anything about when they would or if they are looking to apply Part 4A to trust distributions in those type of scenarios, but um, it does beg the question.
2: But Guardian is a very specific case. I find both of these are really very specific cases, don't you find?
0: They're both specific, yeah. One is about non-residents and one is about a sort of, I'll use the word contrived. one is about a contrived share buyback arrangement. Neither of these cases, nor any other case that I'm aware of, deals with your family or your adult beneficiaries or your income splitting or your what does an ordinary family dealing even mean type scenario. So I think people are sort of crying out for one of those cases. That's the one where people really need guidance on.
2: So can I run you through an example and see where it falls out of the window, so to speak? Before we go through this example and see that you can still use trust quite advantageously, before we do that, here's a quick word from our sponsor DocuSign. Oh, it's coming. That time of year where stress levels go up by 15 to 20%. Yep, tax time. And when stress is up, mistakes happen. But I'm not here to talk about my screw-ups, because this year I've gone digital with DocuSign. Now there's no snail mail paperwork, invoices are getting done faster. So when it comes to tax time, I can just be an accountant and not some paper chaser. Sign up for your free trial at docusign.com.au. Next time, DocuSign. Let's say we have a taxpayer, you know, let's call him Dad, and he has some either a business, you know, or a share portfolio that is earning income or an investment property, but he's earning income somehow, but this income producing activity requires capital and dad has capital let's say he has four hundred thousand dollars and so he invests this capital into that let's say business and then yes in theory the business could pay him interest but if it does it doesn't really make any difference because then the business will have a tax deduction and dad has to pay 47 percent of tax on it so it doesn't really help him so he gives the four hundred thousand dollars just to the business in this example. And then dad also has a son at college who needs $40,000 to live on. I mean, you know, very lavish lifestyle, but just to make the numbers work. And then also let's assume that interest is 10% at the moment. So that means dad pays the $40,000 to his son completely out of after-tax income. So not ideal. And so now dad does it differently through a trust. And I would like to get your thoughts on whether Section 100A attacks this. My feeling is at the moment it doesn't. It could still work, but I would love to get your thought. So now Dad has a trust with a corporate trustee and he has nothing to do with trust. So the corporate, you know, the corporate trustee, somebody else, his wife or even his son and other children or so. And then he contributes these $400,000 to the trust as capital. And then the trust loans it to the business. And so the business pays $40,000 of interest and hence has income. This income gets paid out to the son. And so then the son covers his living expenses out of these 40000 So dad doesn't pay any support to the son anymore. The son just has to live off this income. And in this scenario, the business has generating expenses of 40000 in form of this interest that no longer have to be taxed as income in the debts in the debts t- a tax return and at the same time when this forty thousand gets distributed to the son the son doesn't have any other income so then the tax on that is very low. My feeling is from everything we have discussed so far about section hundred and eight because this trust distribution gets paid out. My feeling it is it works. The only thing, the only danger I really see is this when you spoke about family objectives and you know when... When you had these very gray comments that very much sounded like part 4A, that's really the only danger I see to this setup. And I would love to get your thoughts on it.
0: Yeah, look, I think I think that arrangement's okay. So in essence, what you said was, you've got a company, it owes money to its shareholder and the shareholder then sort of contributes the money to a trust and lends it back and then starts to charge interest. Yeah.
2: Yeah, in that example, I didn't even have a company. Oh,
0: okay, yeah.
2: You're right. The business most likely would sit in a company, but whether that is operating as a sole trader or a company doesn't really matter so much because everything gets paid. Yeah, yeah. Company actually pays the $40,000 of interest, and the trust actually pays the $40,000 to the son. So everything gets paid, and hence I think it's quite safe from Section 108. Do you agree? Yeah,
0: I, I agree. I think um, I mean the trust earns derives income. The fact that it derives income from someone that's a related party isn't an issue on itself. I mean, if the rate is artificial in terms of how much it is derived, that's a different question. But if you assume it's a commercial rate, then I think that's fine. So long as it's paid to the to the beneficiary, it's not. A, I don't think it's a problem. The other thing to note is that it's not exactly the same, but you've got the refinancing principle as well.
2: What's the refinancing principle?
0: Well, the refinancing principle is that, let's say you had the business in a company and it owes 400000 to the shareholder. The company could choose to borrow that money from a bank, borrow 400000 from a bank, and then pay out the four hundred to the shareholder. And then it would get a deduction for the interest. So it's somewhat similar to that, that the fact that, you weren't charging interest beforehand, and now you are. That's your choice. You're, you're able to do that.
2: Yes. And also, if you set this up from the start, then uh, interest would be charged right at the start when this loan is given.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, the takeaway is that it, as long as a person receives the benefit of the money, then there is no problem. So if you want to make things simple, just, just pay people their entitlements.
2: But even with that... Even with that, even with paying, you still can reap good tax benefits out of this.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's not, that's not being taken away by this. I think the areas where the common areas to run into some risk would be where entitlements are being forgiven or disclaimed or released or potentially where the, where, where the entitlements are just left there for a very long time and not paid. Those type of arrangements may not be low risk there may be a different category but that doesn't mean that they necessarily um impinge on 100A for example
2: yes so this can still work as long as you have family members that you are happy to financially support then a, a trust still works for you
0: yeah I, I, absolutely so so things I, I don't think things have changed as greatly as people may have initially responded
2: the only thing you can't do anymore is that the, de- that the parents basically do their own thing and the kids have no idea and the parents just, you know, make all these agreements kind of in the background. That's that's really the only thing that doesn't work anymore.
0: You're right, yeah. And, and even that, debatable how much of that is is a problem and how much isn't. But that's the thing that I think people should be on notice about, that those type of situations where literally the children don't know anything about it, they're never paid it, yeah, those are the higher risk ones. So in summary, we have the finalised version of the PCG and the tax ruling now, we've had two further court cases. We are getting a bit closer to some sort of clarity on a few things, but there are still a couple of things that are sort of up in the air and may stay up in the air for a long time. Thankfully, there is a few more examples where things are accepted as greed zone, but there's still a lot is in the ether.
2: Henshaw of Velocity Legal in Melbourne. So, Part 4A came to the ATO's rescue. Part 4A turned out, as it so often does, to be the white knight in the night for the ATO when all else, including Section 100A, had failed. So, these were two updates about Section 100A, the two finalized rulings last week, and the two court cases, the B Blood and the Guardian case, today. Next week, we will go back to the last two episodes of our six-part mini-series about child support. We will speak about non-agency payments with Simon Bacon of Manby & Scott in Melbourne. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to DocuSign for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.